as you may know, like we just mentioned, we are currently studying our way through the New Testament book of John on Sunday mornings. And today we get to continue our study and we get to have a bonus, interesting, rare, fun conversation today. So if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, you can go ahead and open to John chapter eight and we'll get there a little bit. Go ahead and swipe and scroll there. John chapter eight. As you're finding your way there, here's what I need you to do for me. A little favor for me. Think about a time in your life when you were in utter and total shock. You were just blown away. Like it can be a good shock or a bad shock, but just think about that time. Maybe it's when you were younger. Maybe it's something that you heard about. Maybe it's something that you witnessed, some news that you got. If you're over 30, you can probably remember where you were when you were watching TV on 9-11 when the Twin Towers fell. Or maybe like me, I remember the exact, not just the place, but like I had my legs up on the couch. I was watching OJ in the Bronco down the interstate going, I love the Bills. Like I was really frustrated. So maybe something like that for you. Or if you want to think of a positive version of stunned, maybe you can remember when your boyfriend surprisingly ask for your hand in marriage. And I just want to say props to that boyfriend because there's no secrets anymore, okay? So way to go, that guy. Or maybe you remember your first positive pregnancy test, something like that. For me, when James Walker Thompson V, that's my little man, and when Anna Jubilee were each born, I lost it. Like I was laughing, but I was crying. I was really, really happy, but my face hurt a lot. Like it was so, so wonderful. And My tiny little lovely wife pushed out both babies, both on their due dates, both with no drugs, which makes it way more shocking and amazing, especially if you know my beautiful little wife. And holding each new life for the first time changed me. So think about a time like that for you. Now, it doesn't have to be something that massive that only happens once or twice in life. I can also recall specific sunsets, specific hurtful words people have said to me. I can recall specific times of laughing with friends or specific moments of loss even. And all of these have stuck with me because they were perplexing in the moment. And somehow these moments, some good, some bad, they have shaped me and changed me over time. But now let's take it one little, one little step further here. Think about a shocking thing, an event maybe, that could be interpreted in opposite ways and be shocking both ways. Like if you're a Chiefs fan, last Sunday night, congratulations, Josh Thompson, way to go. And same event, if you're a 49ers fan, tough luck for you, that stinks. Or, or you, you, you championed hard for candidate A, and out of nowhere, candidate B gets elected. Same thing. Astounding, but in two opposite ways. Maybe you know John and Charles Wesley, both brothers that God used mightily in the Great Awakening and in the 1700s. John was the passionate preacher and Charles was the poetic hymns guy. John preached thousands of sermons and Charles wrote thousands of hymns. And in 1751, John got married. And when you get married, obviously, John was excited. But his brother didn't think it was such a hot idea. Now don't forget, Charles, Brother Charles here is the poetic, artsy one. And in 2006, 
255 years later, an Anglican bishop was reading through Charles's diary and found a few coded sections. And after careful study, he figured out the key to uncode these sections in Charles's diary. And guess what the coded parts said? They were little talks about how Charles was thinking about throwing John's wedding right? Because he was like, this girl ain't good for my bro. Like he was, he was worried uh, about the thing. John was excited. Charles was terrified. He knew this girl wasn't good for John. And Charles was right. John and his wife, Mary, never divorced, but also never had a great marriage. So <clears throat> same event, two completely different shocking takes on it. I think these events, or excuse me, these ideas, they get a little bit more intense when, when you put matters of faith on the table. My favorite example of this comes from Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Living with a Wild God. Barbara has an undergraduate degree in chemistry. She has a master's in theoretical physics, and she has a PhD in cellular biology, which means she's smarter than all you, and me too, okay? That's what we're dealing with with Barbara here. Also, Barbara is agnostic, but in her book, Living with a Wild God, she recounts an event that happened when she was 17 years old, and she is still to this day trying to make sense of it in her 70s. She journaled about it then, and now she's still trying to go, what, what actually happened to me? She said something beyond her happened to her. This is what Barbara writes in her book, Living with a Wild God. Here is where we leave the jurisdiction of language where nothing is left but the vague gurgles of surrender expressed in words like transcendent. That's a sentence. That's massive, okay? That's beautiful. She continues. <clears throat> there were no visions, no prophetic voices, no visits by totemic animals, just a kind of blazing everywhere. Something poured into me and I poured out into it. This was not the passive beatific merger with the all as promised by the Eastern mystics. It was a furious encounter with a living substance that was coming at me through all things at once. I stopped at one point in front of a secondhand store transfixed by the blinding glow of the most mundane objects, teacups and toasters. I could not contain it, this onrush. Nothing could contain it. And at no time... <clears throat> and in no time did I lose physical control of myself. Whatever was going on, whatever cyclones raged in my brain, the neuromuscular system remained functional throughout. Now, uh, that memoir is super, super intriguing. And Barbara herself <clears throat> still doesn't know what to make of it. And I think she still remains agnostic. But if you read her entire account, she uses language that is almost identical to the way that the biblical writers talk about God. <clears throat> I mean, she legit sounds like a, somebody that got left on the cutting room floor of the Psalms or something. That's exactly, she sounds like an Old Testament prophet when she writes. And so for me, I think that what happened to her was some uniquely weird divine thing that's not normal to us, and that's why Barbara is the perfect example, same shocking, bewildering event interpreted in two completely different ways. And I think this interpret the same shocking thing in different ways kind of deal happens regularly, and the decision is ours. What are we gonna make of this? How are we gonna make sense of stuff? And today, we're gonna look at 
what I think may be the most astonishing divine reality in the universe, and then we're gonna look at two opposite responses to it. And even trickier still, sometimes people bounce back and forth between these two responses. So what is the appalling God thing that draws us in and what are the different ways that people look at it? And this is way more an art than a science, thinking about God like this. So we need to wade into it patiently. And today we'll be helped along with our thinking with John chapter eight, verses one through 11. John chapter eight, verses one through 11. That is our passage. <coughs> and after I read it, I'll say the word of God for the people of God, and then comes your line with happy gratitude, thanks be to God. So what are the ways that people do and should respond when God shockingly shows up? John 8, 1 through 11, here we go. We'll actually uh, start at 7.53, here we go. <clears throat> they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Verse six, this they, said, <clears throat> this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. <clears throat> Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, well, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. Now, about that. We get to have a seminary class for seven minutes. Some of you will be like, this is fun. Others will get lost. <clears throat> I promise, just hang with me, seven minutes. This is our rare and interesting discussion that we get to have as you can see above the passage, or perhaps in the footnotes, depending on which Bible you have, you might see something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. What in the world is that about? Thank you for asking. <clears throat> broadly, broadly speaking, and very simply speaking, we don't have the original copy of the Gospel of John. We don't. It would be really cool if we did, but I'm assuming that if we did, some moron would charge you like 10,000 bucks to go look at it or something and make you feel more holy. And so on one level, glad we don't have it. In fact, we probably don't even have a copy of the original copy, and that's almost certainly the case for the entire Bible. So this isn't the big one, but this can be a little shocking. I'm looking at you right now. You're going, huh, what is, what is happening? Now, it's a little shocking, and there are two different ways to interpret these things. <clears throat> Way number one, you can give up and freak out and illogically conclude that all of Christianity is a joke, and I say that mostly tongue-in-cheek. Some people are legitimately shaken by this, and on one level, good. I, I get that that might be a little, whoa, wait a second, for you, especially if you were raised pretty conservative. So one interpretation of this is more cynical and skeptical. <clears throat> the other way to interpret this is with what I just call curious faith. So that's my team. 
That's where Charlie and I are with these kinds of things. And here's the broad reason why that's our team. So I'm gonna start really broad here. There are only 10 manuscripts of Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, which those, those accounts were written during the missionary journeys of Paul. Like while the book, book of Acts was happening, these Gaelic Wars were being written. And there's only 10 manuscripts. And the earliest manuscript we have from the original writing is the 10th century. So do a little math. That's a thousand years from the date it was originally written. And nobody ever goes, huh, I wonder if the Gaelic Wars are re- real or not. That doesn't happen. Okay. The primary Roman history text that we have is from Tacitus, who lived about 50 years after Jesus, still in the first century. And we only have two documents of, Ro- of Tacitus's Roman history. One is from the 9th century, and the other one is for, from the 11th century. And you were never taught to question the Pax Romana in history in high school, ever, right? Simply put, this is how ancient historiography is done. And this is how it goes with anything in the ancient world. It doesn't matter, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Homer, Iliad, Odyssey, whatever, this is what happens. And this is an academic discipline called textual criticism. Now, guess how many New Testament manuscripts we have? Don't forget, Julius Caesar got 10, Tacitus has two. The New Testament has, drum roll please, 5,800 manuscripts, okay? And the earliest one we have is from the late 90s of the first century, which is not a 1,000 years after it was originally written, but within the lifetime of the New Testament writers, meaning it ain't even close. The New Testament is the most historically documented ancient text prior to Gutenberg's 15th century printing press. No other work of literature has a shot. Wow, Jim, that's fun and I didn't understand it. What does this have to do with our passage? Thanks for asking. Well, imagine yourself in the early church in the first few centuries as you realized how beautiful and great the gospel was and as you continued to share it and as you continued to spread it and as you continued to copy it down as fast as you could to get it to other people, over time, small variations surfaced with all of these thousands of manuscripts. And the other thing is, in transition or because people were reading them so much, some manuscripts tore, some uh, Parts of the New Testament were shared just in uh, small sections, not with the technology of a neatly bound book like we have today. And you might go, that's not technology. Well, I tell you what, <clears throat> it actually is. And if you do good history homework, you'll realize that early Christianity was such a bookish religion that it actually helped create the modern technology of the book as we understand it, that's free. Now, <clears throat> most variations, as people copied these things, most little variations and differences were just a verb tense here or there, or is this noun singular or plural, something like that. And I assure you there are zero doctrinal things in Christianity that are affected by these small differences and variations in all the manuscripts. But our passage today is one of two that's a different ballgame because it's an entire story, there are two in the New Testament, that was circulated in different ways. And our passage today that we just read is missing from every Gospel of John manuscript collection before the fifth century. And so when and why and how did people start to include it in John? They did a little bit later, and when they did, they started to put it in different places. Some people glued it after 736, some people put it after 744. We here have it at the end of seven. Some people put it at after John 21, and some people even put it in Luke 21. And a lot of the language here even sounds like Luke. So again, 
what do we need to do with this? <clears throat> well, the likelihood, in my opinion, that John originally wrote this is very slim. And it's frequently included here in John because of a, a later manuscript tradition. And there's some fascinating and historical discussions that can be had at this juncture. <clears throat> now, if I've lost you already, just now pay attention. Just go, okay, now, here we go. But, and this is a big but, you can do all your homework, okay? You can go get more degrees than Arizona. You can read massive books on textual criticism and on the transmission and preservation of the ancient text. You can learn high Homeric Aristotelian Greek or like low key common Koine Greek that the New Testament was written in. And you can read all these manuscripts for yourself. But the buck stops with this question. Do you believe there's a good creator God who has revealed himself in Jesus who speaks clearly to his people through the Spirit? Do you believe that? And for hundreds of reasons that we can't do right now, I think we can humbly and confidently say yes. And directly connected to this, it's healthy to have a view of the Bible's inspiration in which Yes, God worked in and through human authors as they wrote, but he also worked through people as it was circulated and shared and edited and finely tuned and finalized, okay? That's the kind of view of the inspiration of scripture that we need to have. Our friend Tim at the Bible Project is a great example of someone whose deep dive into these technical issues strengthened rather than frustrated his faith in God and his word. And if you want to go uh, scour Bible Project resources. Tim has great discussions about that in different places. <clears throat> Furthermore, if you are one of the 13% of people in here who are Bible nerds, I love you, and you want to think more about this, we are putting a link to Dr. John Piper's sermon on this text in which he spends a lot more time than I have on this. Um, and so you can go there if you'd like to think about these things some more. So three questions. Where do Charlie and I stand with all this? One, did it really happen? We're going with yes. Leading New Testament scholars like Don Carson and Bruce Metzger say things like, there's little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. Two, was this originally part of John's gospel? Probably not. The text does not sound like and feel like the rest of John's account. And thirdly, should we count it as a part of Holy Scripture? And we say yes by faith. And because of the textual history of this passage, that is where we lean. And other godly, awesome people, Jesus-loving, Bible-thumping people who differ from us, uh, they differ from us on this issue, and that is totally okay. That's totally fine. So I felt like I had to do that there for just, I hope seven minutes of seminary was really lovely for you. Um, but we need to go back and actually check out the story itself. I love the, the, the nerdy part. Because the story itself is a powerful picture, and this is actually something that gives me confidence to believe that this is God's word. Because the actual message, not the different text traditions, but the message of the text is kind of like the message of the whole New Testament in tiny seed form. So let's go back to our passage here in John 8, 1 through 11. <clears throat> now, verse 2. The scene is that Jesus is publicly teaching outside of the temple. That's where he is. This was starting to become a habit for him. This eventually gets him in trouble, as we know. And we don't know what he was teaching. He could have been teaching Torah, first five books of the Bible, and telling people and reminding people, hey, this is what it's like to be faithful to God and live as God's people. He could have been teaching from the prophets and talking about what the coming kingdom of God is like. That was one of his favorite things to talk about if you read the gospel accounts. 
I mean, we don't know what he was talking about. He could have been telling another brow-furrowing parable that makes people scratch their heads, but then illustrates what the kingdom is like or what the Father is like. And whatever the case, whatever he's teaching at quote-unquote church that day, <clears throat> an unparalleled teaching moment was about to interrupt class, one that he did not have on the lesson plans. Verse three, the religious leaders storm in and they bring a woman into the space where Jesus is teaching and they walk her right into the middle of everybody who's there. It's like somebody coming up and dropping her right in front of the stage. That's what these religious leaders do. And it says the woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, if you've listened to my big mouth preach before, you know I'm a huge fan of using your imagination when, when, you, when you read the Bible. You might wanna put a governor on that right now, okay? Right? This is, <clears throat> this is a little sketchy and weird and crazy right here. So this gal, the shame that she's going through is unlike anything she's ever felt. Nothing compares to this girl's humiliation and embarrassment right now. I mean, just think, she's caught in the act. That should be enough. But then my girl is dragged to church, thrown on stage only to be mocked, right? This is utterly and totally unbearable. And maybe your mind goes, <clears throat> what about, I mean, what about the guy? Like, where's, where's the guy? Don Carson writes, adultery is not a sin of isolation. One wonders why the man was not brought with her. Either he was fleeter of foot than she, or the accusers themselves were sufficiently chauvinistic to focus on the woman. Whatever the case, the inequity, or unequality, the inequity of the situation stirs our feelings of compassion for the woman, however guilty she herself was. Right? Like, you, you, you feel for this girl who's thrown up on stage at church, caught in the act of adultery. Also, side note, uh, the Bible doesn't teach that we're sinners. It's my pastoral shocking one-liner, so you can wait for what I mean by that. The Bible teaches something a little worse, that we're all sinners and victims, which is a far worse condition. Yes, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, but it also says in Genesis 3, if you read it correctly, it says that the woman was deceived by the serpent, and if you're deceived, you're victimized, and that's terrifying, and that's all of us, including and especially this gal right here who was caught in adultery. So <clears throat> without question, she has sinned. But she is likewise a victim because these religious leaders are using her as bait. And so I, I feel, I'm sure you feel it, like I, I hate it for this girl, but she's, she's still guilty. And just when you think it can't get any more unbearable for her, she probably slowly starts to realize, oh no, these guys bringing me in here, catching me in the act, it could actually lead to my death. It's not just enough to be caught and dragged and thrown in front of church, but now this actually might lead to my death. And so these religious snobs ask Jesus right in the middle of the, the interrupted class. They, they say, hey, uh, teacher man, Torah says we should stone this girl. What you think about that? And in the words of the galactic prophet, Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. <laughs> hey, more Star Wars fans than I thought. Way to go. So these religious dudes, <clears throat> they know that Jesus is big on compassion. He's big on 
loving the shamed and the unlovable and the outcast. But they also know, hey, this dude has Bible chops. Like, he's a good Bible teacher, okay? He can hang. He's smart. And so they think that they have painted him into a corner. They think, all right, either he's got two options. Either he's going to be compassionate and dismiss Torah, or he's going to go with Torah and let this girl die in front of everybody there. So they think they have him trapped. And furthermore, some commentators say that how Jesus answered this, how he replied and responded to these religious leaders would have opened him up, possibly opened himself up to punishment by Roman law. Basically, we're dealing with kind of like a triple threat from these uh, religious elite. Now, the text that they are referring to is Deuteronomy 22, 22. And yes, to us, death seems like an extreme consequence for adultery. But if you read that entire swath, that entire section of Deuteronomy is all about purging evil from the midst of Israel so that they would be holy. And they were supposed to take extreme measures to purify themselves so that they could treasure and hold dearly to things like life and marriage and sex. Additionally, Torah was by far the most humane of ancient Near Eastern law codes when compared to things like Hammurabi Code and Babylonian Code, etc. You guys have read all of those, I'm sure. And in our scene today, none of these things are questioned. And sadly, it's not that they're even wrestled with to be seen as God's word, but these things are used to try to trap God's word in the flesh, Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Well, like he always does, he throws us a curveball. He's pinned down, right? And so what does he do? He bends down in the dirt and starts to draw. Like that's what he's doing. That's exactly what, like in verse six, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And I've heard a dozen times a dozen suggestions of what he's writing. Some people are like, well, there's this passage in Jeremiah 17 that talks about something being written in the dirt. And I go, read all of Jeremiah 17. You're forcing it. Some people are like, well, the girl was just caught in the act, didn't have enough clothes on. He's just turning his eyes away. I go, probable. Some people are like, he's just kind of gathering himself to respond correctly to these people. I'm like, he's Jesus. He's already loaded, locked. I mean, he's, he's ready. Like, <clears throat> so why did he bend down? No clue. I got no clue why he bent down or what he wrote when he did. But he's bent down and he's like, drawn in the sand and they keep pushing him. It says they keep interrogating him. They keep bothering him. Like, hey man, what you doing? How's that corner you're painted into, buddy? Yeah, rabbi. Like, that's what they're doing. They're continuing to egg him on and going, you owe us an answer. So he slowly stands up and I imagine that everything was like, and got really quiet. I mean, he's drawn in the dirt. They're still calling him out and he stands up. It's like, oh, game time. And so everybody gets quiet. And they're not ready for his response. In verse seven, he just says, hey, let him who is among you without sin, you can be the first one to throw a rock. Now you can take the governor off your imagination. I like to think that these guys are like looking at each other and they're like, I don't wanna think about whether he's right. Can we just like stone both of them? Like these guys are so furious. They're just there to get him. That's it. I love verse nine so, so much. Look at it. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. <laughs> like these dudes knew. <clears throat> like it takes them a second, but all the older guys, all the older scribes and Pharisees, they roll their eyes, they sigh, they drop their rocks there, their stones right there. And, and then they go, his answer's perfect. I can't deal with this. And they walk away and they're so frustrated. It's like they know his answer is bullseye wisdom. He doesn't dismiss Torah and he leaves the door wide open for compassion. And because of this, he doesn't breach any Roman law. 
And as all the, the older guys are walking away, all the, the younger, hot-headed, fresh-out-of-seminary dudes are sticking around for a little bit longer and hoping that they can get their way, but to no avail, and they all eventually leave. And finally, it's just this poor girl standing before Jesus and probably also standing before all these people that he was teaching in verse one. And Jesus says to her, he goes, sister, look around. I mean, is there anybody left to condemn you? And I like to think that through gratitude and tears, she shakes her head and goes, no, sir. And Jesus says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, before we break this down, I, I just wanna tell you, like, if you have a, a dark past or you got skeletons in your closet or you have abused or been abused when it comes to God's good gift of sex, if you, if you feel like this woman right here and you got a scarlet letter on, those things in your past do not have to weigh you down or define you. If you come to Jesus, he's not ashamed of your shame. Jesus doesn't reluctantly forgive you. He loves you and he wants you to live in freedom. And if you're a Christian and this kind of thing haunts you, please, 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 please hear me very clearly. Jesus does not regret saving you. He doesn't. He doesn't condemn you or accuse you. He doesn't love like some future version of you. He loves you right now and he loves loving you right now. And I know people who live under like a demonic kind of guilt because they think, man, Jesus can never forgive me because of the stuff that I've done. And if that's you, I want to lovingly and politely say to you, what's it like being wrong? Like, Good luck trying to be stronger than Jesus and his love. It's not gonna work. I mean, this is why an ex-terrorist wrote half the New Testament, guys, all right? So grace can be front and center all the time, all the time. You can't out God's grace in Jesus. It's not possible. We're in John chapter one. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace ad infinitum forever. There is now and forever will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You gotta feel, not just no category, no, 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 no. You gotta feel that that is good news. Feel the beauty of that. And for our purposes right now, this picture of grace is one shocking reality and two completely different responses. One, one mind-blowing event and two opposite interpretations. Now, I had somebody at 8.30 this morning pull me aside before the sermon even started and said, why is your sermon called foul mystic grace? And if you've looked on the app or something, it's in there. <clears throat> it's not a word. I just made it up. That's why. But here's the deal. The word thalmazo in Greek means to be amazed or astonished or to marvel at something. But it's not just a positive word. <clears throat> this word is the word that you felt when you were watching 9-11, and it's also the word that, it's also the reality that you felt when you held your kid for the first time. So sometimes it says that Jesus thalmazo, sometimes it says that he marvels at people's faith, and other times it says that he marvels at people's unbelief, their lack of faith, same word. The word means that you have your eyes wide open and your mouth wide open, ah, no way, because you're witnessing something unbelievable, whether it's good or bad, and it's been used in both ways in the past couple of chapters in John. So, grace, 
like the kind in this text, is among the most astonishing divine realities in the universe, and there are two opposite responses to it, and both are, quote-unquote, thalmistic. <clears throat> One is self-righteous, thalmistic, self-righteous astonishment. Jesus, how dare you forgive somebody as blatantly guilty as them? What if they keep on sinning? Jesus, you ever thought about that? Jesus, we got a standard to uphold here, bro. What are you doing? Why, you can't just go forgiving them. That's one astonishing reaction to grace. And the other response is not self-righteous, but it's liberating astonishment. You mean you love me? You mean you forgive me? I do not deserve that, Lord. I do not deserve your mercy. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Both are thalmidzo, thalmadzo in the Greek New Testament. Both are responses to grace or to describe it in Luke's terms because he actually uses real words. When the father graciously welcomes the prodigal son home, it proves that the son who stayed home was just as prodigal. You got me? So here's the deal. As churchy people, we can be like older brother in Luke 15, and we can be like scribes and Pharisees in John 8, etc. You know how? Because sometimes we get a little bit judgmental. We can get a little bit hypocritical, a little self-righteous, a little legalistic. And then we look down at people because we think our sin isn't as bad as theirs. We think God loves us more because our sin isn't as public as theirs. You roll like that. You know people who roll like that. Is sin real and bad and destructive? Yeah, duh. Should we turn away from it? Absolutely. That's how the passage ends, of course. But don't forget verse seven. If anyone among you doesn't have sin, you get to throw the first rock. Let me tell you how to reword that. We are all the woman caught in adultery. Every one of us, you and me. And we all need the grace and compassion that Jesus is extending here. And if we have received it, how asinine and inconsistent if we don't then extend the same grace to others. Judging people that Jesus doesn't is like driving against traffic on the freeway of spirituality. You ain't getting nowhere, okay? And I've said it before, but one of my favorite pictures of Christianity is it's like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And in that economy, judgmentalism does not survive. Isn't that great? Now, because grace um, like this is so central to our life of faith and should be so central to our life of faith, it's good to, to hear about grace from different places and from different voices. And so to give you another <clears throat> glimpse of uh, thalmistic grace and it's thalmistic responses. New word, woohoo. Uh, I, I got a video for you. This is Matt Chandler from 2009. And if you've never watched a Matt Ch or listened to a Matt Chandler sermon, he can be pretty intense, also kind of fun, but the point is obvious. Uh, look at the screens here, Matt Chandler. Uh, occurred my freshman year of college when um, I randomly sat next to a, I'm a freshman in college, I'm sitting next to a 26-year-old single mother who's coming back 
to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus, didn't know, and so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross. And so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter. She's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man. And, and so we would talk through that, the wisdom in that. Um, they, they, this is the relationship we had, just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things. A friend of mine was playing at a church in the area, and, and so I asked her to come. He was a musician, and, and so I said, hey, a good friend of mine's in a band, he's playing. Um, what, why, don't you come, why don't you come hear him? And, and so she agreed, she thought it would be a concert. I knew better, it was shady, it was excellent. And um, <laughs> she came with me, and, and we listened to Robbie play, and, and he was tremendous, just a real anointed guy, and then the, the minister got up and he said, today I wanna to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh-oh, this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose and he smelled it and he showed how pretty it was and then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose, I want you to smell it, I want you to touch it, I want you to see the texture in it. Do it, do it, and I'm gonna teach. And, and then he began what honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart, I don't, I'm still wrestling, um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It, it was fear-mongering at, at its best. It was, um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip, and you, right? And so I'm just thinking with Kim beside me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And you know, some kid came up, the rose is just completely jacked up, it's broken, the things are off, the petals are broken, and, and he lifts it up in his big crescendo. I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him, anger, and it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose! That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus wants the rose, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Christ won, you're not even teaching the basics of our faith. So the woman in our passage is this touted rose being used as a religious trapping device. But grace, <clears throat> grace is so shocking and so befuddling and so incredible that when we're face to face when it's, with its purity and its power, that's when we can say, here's where we leave the jurisdiction of language where nothing is left but the vague gurgles of surrender expressed in words like transcendent. So do, do you ever sense that? H have you ever known grace so intimately that you were left speechless and in surrender? H have you ever felt the essence of, of Jesus wants the rose in your own life? We're meant to not merely know that in our minds, but in our souls, in everything that we are. Now, <clears throat> absolutely, we can have more com conversations about the details of this passage, but it does 
fit with thematic ease in John because the religious leaders at this point in John can't stand the grace that Jesus is and that he offers. And ironically, this leads to the cross, like Chandler mentioned. And on the cross, grace is even more on display. But this is what you have to understand. You have to get this. They thought they were putting an end to him, but they were actually just helping him make his point in the clearest way possible. The cross is Jesus taking the enemy's main weapon, death, and using it to defeat him. The cross is the righteous offered up for the unrighteous, the holy one offered up for the unclean and the impure, the true son separated from the father to bring us into the family. The cross is the epicenter of scandalous grace. It's the place where we embrace God's mercy and we're set free. It's the absolute perfect commentary on our undeservedness and God's lavish love at the same time. And unlike these religious leaders in John 8, Jesus is the only one among us who is without sin. He's the only one who doesn't deserve death, and yet he laid down his life for us. So in whatever ways you are a rebellious sinner and in whatever ways you are a vulnerable victim, the cross of Jesus is a fountain of hope and peace from which you can continually drink. It is the place where both oppressed and oppressor can find healing. The cross is God's declaration. Come and belong and go and sin no more. It is not just entry point into relationship with God, but our daily life source of grace and truth. And coupled with his resurrection, these two realities form the single most shocking, bewildering event in human history. And now we're left to decide, what are you going to do about it? Will I let the momentary pleasure of my feelings and perceptions and self-righteousness define me? Or will I trust God's love in the cross of Jesus as the defining reality in my life, and this is an everyday decision. And if we fail at rightly trusting him, guess what he does? Where are your accusers? I mean, who's gonna condemn you? And we inhabit and we share this kind of grace well when we come to Jesus in humble dependence on who he is and what he has done for us. Fellowship Greenville, this is the gospel. God's grace is so amazing and astounding that it saves sinners like me and like you, and that is never not glorious good news. And so today, I hope you are building your life around this message of God's grace and mercy and love in Jesus. Here's how I'd like to close today. If you'd like to go ahead and take your Bibles and your phones and put them under your seat, that would be great. I just wanna give us about 30 seconds <clears throat> to pause and make these things personal. Take time on your own to just say, God, thank you so, so, so much for your grace. Any meditation on your own deservedness should lead to a meditation on God's goodness. Take time to thank him and praise him for his grace and mercy.